This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. This week, we kick off an all-new five-week curated series on habitat in our gardens, what it means, what it looks like, how we can improve it through the lenses of people at work on the ground, in the lab, and in classrooms. Stay with us. So the Xerces Society protects the life that sustains us. These really vital, small sort of animals that people don't usually think about. They're driving almost everything that we do. If you love to eat nutritious fruits, vegetables, nuts, you can thank a pollinator that pollinated those. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. The news goes from bad to worse when we're talking about biodiversity, wildlife, and overall insect declines in our world in the past 25 years. In 2018, a German study spanning 27 years reported a more than 75% decline over those years in total flying insect biomass. 2018 also saw dramatic losses in populations in one of North America's most charismatic insects, the monarch butterfly, with an estimated 14.8% decline of eastern monarchs and a precipitous 86% one-year decline in western monarchs. There are big groups at work trying to understand and address these issues, and of course a lot of us on the ground wanting to do more. Cultivating Place has held many conversations, exploring some of these habitat and species loss, degradation, and fragmentation concerns, and how and where we as gardeners come into being agents of change for the better with our garden spaces and garden practices. But it feels more compelling than ever that we continue to have these conversations and to go even deeper. Starting symbolically today, Thursday, March 21st, our first episode after the vernal equinox and its annual renewal of light and above-ground growth. This week, we kick off an all-new five-week curated series on habitat in our gardens, what it means, what it looks like, how we can improve it through the lenses of people at work on the ground, in the lab, and in classrooms. We'll learn in conversation with a leading monarch researcher, a hummingbird gardener and researcher, a migratory bird garden horticulturalist, bee advocates, and educators in urban environments looking to bridge gaps in knowledge, action, and measurable outcomes. Today, we start with an overview. We're joined by way of Skype with Scott Black, Executive Director of the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation, and Phyllis Stiles of Bee City and Bee Campus USA, now an initiative of the Xerces Society. Together, they and their work connect us as gardener conservationists from coast to coast. Welcome, Scott and Phyllis. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. Thanks, Jennifer. 
So I'm going to start off by having each of you individually just introduce yourself and how you came to this work and and the overall mission of your section of the Xerces Society, if you will. Let's start with you, Scott, as executive director of the Society. Yes, my name is Scott Black, and I am executive director here of the Xerces Society. You know, I I think I started this work when I was really young. Um, I was the kid that went out of my house to find whatever living creature was close to home. Um, grew up the youngest of nine kids. We didn't have a lot of money. You know, we went camping locally, but we didn't go to far-flung, exciting places that I thought, but I had exciting places close to home. I spent my nights, you know, catching fireflies and looking at all the bugs at streetlights. I spent my days catching butterflies and pulling over rocks to find snakes, uh, lizards. And, you know, my whole life really has been dedicated to first uh, understanding these animals as I grew up. And then moving towards protecting them because they started to understand the consequences of what humans were doing to biological diversity. Um, came to Xerces almost 20 years ago, mm-hmm. and we were a very small organization with just a few staff. And since then, um, uh, this this notion has really caught on. And Xerces now has uh, 54 staff working across the country and actually indeed in, in several other countries and and excited to continue my passion and, and this thread from, uh, from that early age. But I do want to thank my mom. She put up with me bringing home all sorts of creepy crawlies right into my house um, and uh, wasn't scared away. And you were catching fireflies. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, mm-hmm. um, you know, in a uh, lower middle class area. Um, what was really neat, though, about where I grew up or what was fortuitous, I guess, is a couple blocks from my house. There was a really a two block square area that had yet to be developed. It had a little meadow. It had a wood lot. It had an ephemeral stream. And and that's where I would go pretty much daily as a kid. Uh, to to search out the small animals. It was funny, I didn't look at the bigger animal, the birds and things nearly as much as I did these animals that I could really just find and look at closely and actually f- kind of hold in my hand. Yeah. Phyllis, let's get started with, with you. Tell us about what brought you to this work. Well, my background is very different than Scott's. It's true that my earliest memories are of spiders and the skeleton of a cicada who had left that skeleton on a tree uh, casing. I'm not using the right terminology because I'm not a scientist. And I I somehow missed all the science when I was going to school and to college. I was a, a liberal arts major and have done various aspects of nonprofit work throughout my life as far as West Africa and North Africa and then throughout the Southeast as far westward as Arkansas. So my career has uh, taken lots of different directions, but it wasn't until my husband got interested in beekeeping that I discovered the pollinators, and uh, that was life-changing for me. And so uh, there's a a quote by Mark Twain that says, the two most important days of your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. (laughs) (laughs) 
And so uh, through the world of beekeeping, I got interested in all the pollinators because the honeybee is a, a terrific gateway pollinator. So many people get involved in pollinator conservation uh, thanks to uh, their introduction to honeybees. Mm -hmm. And so by 2011, after having been a beekeeper for three years and hearing nothing but bad news, because I would go to all of our bee club meetings that uh, occur once a month, I just got tired of the bad news. I got really tired of the bad news and uh, asked my fellow beekeepers if they would help me invent something called Bee City USA. And we set about trying to invent what that might look like. And by 2012, we had our first certified city, which was Asheville, North Carolina. So I'm the founder of Bee City USA. And thankfully, uh, the Xerces Society liked what we were doing and um, decided to take responsibility for us. Last year in the summer, we merged with the Xerces Society. And so I continue to work with them as the leader of uh, Bee City USA and Bee Campus USA. That, that is outstanding. And you are located in Asheville, North Carolina, correct? That's right. Uh, like so many Xerces staff, uh, we are working remotely from 13 states, actually. Yeah. So I'm going to move to Scott, uh, back to you, and have you remind listeners who have uh, had episodes on Cultivating Place with Xerces Society before, but remind listeners about the mission of Xerces Society, and maybe a little bit about its reach at this point. And, and then we'll dig down into uh, a little bit more about what both of you are doing in different capacities across the society to help us help the situation. Great. Yeah. So the Xerces Society protects the life that sustains us. That's what we like to say. We're really working to protect all of the animals, these really vital small sort of animals that people don't usually think about that are the base of the food chain. You know, it's fascinating to me how uh, we don't think about these animals, yet they're driving almost everything that we do. If you love to eat uh, nutritious fruits, vegetables, nuts, you can thank a pollinator that pollinated those. If you want to see salmon swimming in our stream, or grizzly bears wandering around in our wilderness, you can thank an insect. Salmon need little flies that they feed on when they're young, and bears need those salmon to eat, as well as eating berries that are pollinated. If you like your birds in your backyard, you can thank an insect. About 88% of all birds at some point in their life need to eat insects. So these animals are really driving systems, whether it's cleaning up our dead plant and animal matter uh, as detritivores, helping clean our streams, our freshwater mussels, feeding the myriad animals or helping feed us. Um, uh, these animals are vital. And the Xerces Society's focus is to engage people in conservation. I like to say we're taking the science because that's really important, but we're making it applicable uh, making it easy to understand, making it so that people can use it for the conservation of these animals. Whether you're a farmer 
and are going to put in a hedgerow that will ultimately help you with pollination, a backyard gardener who's going to put in a lot of native plants to grow these insect pollinators, um, or a, a land manager at the Forest Service who's looking to better understand how to manage grazing or off-road vehicles or other issues. We're there to take that science in into practice. Beyond that, we're, of course, working on policy, trying to get policies that help these animals as well, and general education so that the public, land managers, policymakers really do understand the importance of these animals. A study about a decade ago found that insects, and this is very conservative estimate, but insects are worth $57 billion to the U.S. economy. And that's just for pollination, pest control, and cleaning up uh, our waste, as well as things like recreation. Bird watching would not happen without, without these insects. So mm -hmm. our reach is, is quite large. We're working all across the United States, uh, pretty much in every state. We don't have staff in every state, but we're working in every state. We're working in a lot of other countries with partners through the, inter, uh, the IUCN, uh, the International Union for Conservation of Nature, as well as scientists all, all over the world. So our reach is large and our taxa is incredibly large. There's mm -hmm. lots of insects and other invertebrates, and, uh, but our goal is the same, to sustain them. Yeah. The reach is impressive and the task is impressive. Define, so that we are all on the same page, define for us invertebrate and define for us insect so that we know what we're talking about. Yeah, oftentimes when I talk, I talk about insects and other invertebrates because insects are sort of the entryway. Mm -hmm. I think most people know what an insect is. It's that animal um, without a backbone that has six legs, uh, whether it's a butterfly or a beetle or a fly. Uh, these are these are the insects. Invertebrates uh, are animals without backbones. Um, it includes insects, but it includes spiders. It includes mollusks, which are our snails, our freshwater mussels. Uh, it includes arachnids, our spiders. It includes crustaceans, including our crayfish and uh, uh, our crabs. It's this vast uh, number of species uh, that are on the planet. Most people don't realize that 90, over, way over 90% of animal biodiversity are in one of these invertebrate groups, mostly insects, crustaceans, or mollusks. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, compared to the vertebrates out there, which are important, I, I do want to say we want to, you know, saving invertebrates. Uh, and protecting invertebrates helps all the animals. Yeah. So I'm not a not just focusing on the insects. <laughs> uh, polar bears are important. Bengal tigers are vital. You know all of these animals, but um, you know these are these are these animals that are, as I mentioned earlier, driving uh, our ecosystems, um, really helping bolster them. You know I like to say the plants and the insects are the fabric of the planet. The other animals are using that fabric, right. uh, and 
uh, unfortunately, humans are, are, are ripping that fabric apart. The other big group, which I, I love to remind people, are, of course, the annelids and our beautiful earthworms and all of the microorganisms that keep our soil alive. And I think that, you know, when I go back to your description of being um, a child and being completely engaged with these creatures that are your size, kind of, and you can actually interact with them in a different way than you can interact with, you know, birds flying through or grizzly bears that you you know exist, but they're not in the little lot right next door. And that is really where the magic happens. And this uh, concept, I think, you know, to really just drive this point home because this episode is kicking off a five-part series on habitat and how gardens and gardeners can make a huge difference. And this study out of Germany that came out last year saying that there'd been a 75% decline over 27 years in total flying insect biomass has enormous enormous repercussions for all of us in all of the ways that you were just outlining. Like these, we do support grizzly bears and polar bears by making sure our insect populations are not decimated beyond all recovery. I want to get into some of the current rates of loss and are there new reports coming out um, and I would love to have you, as of this spring 2019, tell us where we are right now. Yeah, I can start with insects and then Phyllis can, uh, or invertebrates generally, and yep. then Phyllis can come in uh, more specifically on the bees. You know, unfortunately, uh, that study in Germany and a follow-up study in Puerto Rico that actually uh, showed even greater insect biomass decline mm. than the study in Germany and the study in Puerto Rico actually has linked it to decline in birds and to lizards and to amphibians. Mm. These are just really two of the latest studies. We've, many of us uh, in this field, really started to notice something different a decade and a half ago. You know, I've worked on rare species and, you know, always thought that things like the Uncompagre fritillary, which is a butterfly that only lives in the high mountains of Colorado or the Salt Creek tiger beetle, which only lives in relic habitat uh, in Nebraska. These animals that had small footprints and we were impacting those footprints, that was what conservation was about. And about a decade and a half ago, many of us started to see something different. We started to see decline in many of our more common species. Um, or started to think we saw decline. Um, you know, some of us coined this as the windshield effect. I grew up driving a car across Nebraska, a 1971 Mach 1, uh, uh, guzzling way too much gas, going way too fast. I'm glad my mother never knew this. Um, uh, but I would have to clean my car all the time. It was my pride and joy because it was covered in insects. You go back to Nebraska now, and you can drive across the whole state and have very few insects on your windshields. Many of us started to see this, but we didn't have the data. You know, perception is interesting. Even when you're a scientist, we're seeing less insects, but we don't have data. Really over the last decade and a half, assessments uh, by the International Union for Conservation of Nature and NatureServe, studies on butterflies throughout the UK, as well as some studies in uh, the United States, 
um, the loss of charismatic species like uh, and declines like the monarch butterfly or the rusty patch bumblebee, which used to be a common bumblebee throughout the Midwest and Northeast, and now had to be put on the endangered species list. And then these biomass studies showing long-term decline, really these just codified the issue. Right. We are seeing decline across groups. We're seeing decline across geographies, and we're um, uh, we are starting to see, as the Puerto Rico study showed, um, ramifications beyond just the decline in these insects. That that things like birds, uh, lizards, amphibians uh, are are likely suffering, and and so this is a real issue. The one thing I want to point out before I go to Phyllis, because I never like to end on such a depressing note, is what we'll get to in a little bit are the solutions. Mm -hmm. And gardeners can be a huge part of the solution. So I didn't want to leave it hanging that people might just go off and say, I'm turning the radio off now because I'm too depressed. Because right. there are solutions, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Let's move to you, Phyllis, and, and bring us up to speed on where, where you see, you mentioned the rusty patch bumblebee, Scott, but where, uh, where we are in terms of both honeybees and native bee uh, populations and, and reports right now. Well, with the native bees, Jennifer, our, our best information is in the bumblebee world. Mm -hmm. uh, they're easier to track, that they're not easy to track at all, but they're easier than the other solitary bees because they are social bees. So you can uh, locate their colonies and uh, just uh, follow them better than the solitary bees. So we have about 48 species of bumblebees that are native to the United States. About a quarter of them are at risk of extinction. The Franklin Eye uh, bumblebee, even Pennsylvanicus, is at risk. So it, it does get pretty depressing. And in the honeybee world, which we don't work with a whole lot, uh, we just we appreciate them and we appreciate the people it brings to uh, they bring to pollinator conservation. But our, our focus is more on the native uh, pollinators than um, than honeybees, which were brought in the 1600s and more are used more for agriculture. Um, there's a great group called the Bee Informed Partnership, and they do annual surveys to track how the bees are doing across the country, and then they they segment the reports out state by state, and they segment commercial beekeepers out from hobby beekeepers. And so in some states, uh, the losses for last year were as high as 80%. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's, that's pretty bad. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is owed to um, the Varroa mite, which has been devastating to beekeepers, as well as all the other things that are harming all of the pollinators, primarily habitat loss, pesticide use, climate change, Diseases. We've always had diseases, but we seem to keep getting more of them. Uh, so you combine all those things, and that's why our pollinators are having such a tough time. Today, we're in our first episode in a series of five, exploring our gardens as critically important habitat in this world for birds, bees, and all manner of life. We're speaking today with Scott Black and Phyllis Stiles of the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. 
Oh, happy spring. Happy, happy spring. I know it will be 110 degrees here and sunny for 150 days straight soon enough, but I love the arrival of spring. Pretty sure this is hardwired into our lizard brains from way back. Sunlight and green growth are the cues reminding us that there is sufficiency, that there is food and life and constancy in the cycle of things. Speaking of sufficiency, and plenty, and sharing things out in the world. If you're signed up for my A View From Here newsletter, you'll know about the donor incentive that was running through yesterday, the Vernal Equinox herself. Producer Sarah said to me, why don't you just run the offer through the end of the month? Make it a clear calendar date end. And I thought, yeah, why not? And so we are. If you make a donation of $30 or more in support of this program, you listen to, learn from, and love between January 1st and March 31st, the last day of this month this year, you will still get the donor bonus thank you and a copy of the Cultivating Place theme song. I think you'll love it as much as I do. And if you have it in you or feel so called as to make a donation of $120 or more as a one-time gift or As a year-long $10 a month donor, you will get the monthly audio bonus, Garden Life Love Letters. You'll get the first one when I get word of your donation, and you'll get the mid-month ones every month for the next year on the 15th of each month, arriving in your email inbox as little boosts of affirmation and growth right when you might need them the most. So if you were waiting for the right time to support Cultivating Place, that time is now through March 31st. Here's a little taste of the first Garden Life love letter that went out to donors yesterday from the writer and among the wisest of gardeners that I know, Robin Wall Kimmerer. It's faith in that process that that really gives me hope in these mm-hmm. in these times when we might be full of despair. But you look at the way the plant world heals itself, heals us, it changes and adapts. Um, I think if we follow our our, our plant teachers, um, that would be a wise path. Thank you for listening. Thank you for donating. You very directly make this program and series like this one on our gardens as important habitat possible. Happy spring. And now back to our conversation with Scott Black and Phyllis Stiles of the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation and Bee City USA, one of Xerces' many informative initiatives. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're back after a break to continue our conversation with Scott Black, Executive Director of the Xerces Society, and Phyllis Stiles, founder of Bee City and Bee Campus USA, now an initiative of the Xerces Society, advocating for healthy life and habitats across the country and indeed the globe. Welcome back. And we really focus on the pollinators because we are human and they are important to us because they equal food for us to eat and crops and economy. But it's 
as Scott indicated in this idea of a fabric, the importance of the fabric, it is so much bigger than the pollinators. It's just kind of easy for us to access why this should be meaningful or one one prism on why this should be meaningful to us as humans to go and make a difference. And I just want to um, pull out something that you mentioned right there at the end, Phyllis, and that is that in in large part, uh, this fabric is not being torn apart by just one thing, but by a a series of things that are that scientists think are working together to cause this decline. And, and that is, climate change is is changing the the habitats and the conditions for many of these species. And climate change is, of course, human activity driven. The loss of habitat and the fragmentation and degradation of habitat is right there with climate change and um, includes both development and then, as you were also mentioning, the increased use over the last 50 to 75 years of insecticides and herbicides. And while most of these are trying to address human concerns about pests and about disease in humans, I'm just thinking of the mosquito for one right there, anything that is killing a species is affecting pretty seriously most species in that class, no matter how targeted they're trying to be. And just changes the environment for everything, for the soil, for the air, for the water, and this has its ramifications. Um, so all of these things, and I, and then, of course, there's the increased disease in the species themselves, the mite that you were talking about, some bacterial issues, some fungal issues that are seemingly more virulent and more, uh, they, they seem to be taking advantage of a, of a loss of resilience in some of these insect populations. Are there other things that you would add to this list, either one of you, that are that we as gardeners should be be aware of and raise our awareness about in terms of some of the root causes for this overall um, low point in our fabric of the insect base of our world. Well, Jennifer, yeah. can I just oh. um, add when you said that um, we we go right to the pollinators because uh, they have so much to do with our food supply. Let me add to that that, uh, you know, about almost 90% of the world's flowering species, and I'm not talking about um, just agriculture, but if mm. we look at just the wild plant species, yeah. and we're talking about trees and forbs and shrubs, you name it, depend on some kind of pollinator, whether it's a beetle or a bat or a moth or a butterfly or some sort of bee. There's 20,000 species of bees in the world. Um, whatever their pollinator happens to be, those plants would literally uh, disappear yeah. were it not for the assistance of that pollinator to help them reproduce. And so the cascading effects of that for all life on Earth are sort of mind-boggling. And when you think about uh, the bird species alone, I think it's about 90% of bird species depend on insects at some stage in their life cycle. So, right. um, so yeah, it, it goes way beyond just our food supply. It's, right. it's this very uh, 
existence of life on Earth, uh, and that goes back to that fabric that Scott mentioned. And so in terms of uh, what's causing problems uh, for these pollinators and other invertebrates, um, you know, we're just starting to uh, learn more about the insidious impacts of climate change. There's some early studies coming out now showing how the protein content of pollen has changed over the last hundred years in this Anthropocene period that we're in, the period of man. And so <clears throat> what we're finding is that uh, when you look, compare the same plant species pollen uh, that we have stored away from a hundred years ago, and I'm thinking particularly of goldenrod, and you compare it with that same species pollen today, uh, the protein content has really, really diminished. And so for some reason, climate change seems to be causing the, the plants to produce a different kind of pollen. And the same is true of nectar. The, um, the chemical breakdown of their nectar has, has been modified, and the evidence points strongly to climate change for that. But the, mm -hmm. the research is early, so I don't want to get too far out ahead of that. But the implications of that are that these pollinators that are out there foraging and foraging and foraging, trying to find quality food, and uh, enough quantity of food to sustain themselves and to feed their offspring have to work even harder to get the same protein that they used to get by collecting pollen on, um, you know, a certain number of uh, flowers. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, we already knew that the phenology was impacted by climate change, that the uh, insect that was going to pollinate a flower might be emerging either earlier or later than the flower was actually blooming thanks to climate change. But the, uh, the ramifications go far beyond just the phenology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Scott. And if I could, yeah. um, you know, uh, add on, how I like to uh, talk about this is uh, and I didn't come up with this, but it's, it's really, we have so many issues working in synergy against these animals um, that it's kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. How many issues can an animal uh, handle? Right. Um, they have less habitat. That habitat is more fragmented. It has less to eat in that habitat. There are toxins, uh, more toxins now used uh, pesticides, insecticides, herbicides than ever in the history of the world. So many of these habitats, even if they look good, may be impacted by those poisons. We've got d new and novel diseases. We're moving diseases around with animals as well as just with humans. Uh, if, you know, we're moving animals like bumblebees around the planet. This moves their diseases around to other animals that may not be as resilient to those diseases. You add climate change over that. Uh, climate change is changing the climate. Um, I like to call it climate destabilization because it's changing the climate, sometimes warmer, sometimes colder. Right. We've got more storms. We've got earlier springs or later snows. Can you imagine being an animal that one year there's this epic drought and the next year, and this has happened in certain areas, we've got the wettest year on record. 
Um, All of these are, are, are impacting animals. I do want to point out two more because these really are right at the garden level. One of them is lights. We don't know truly the impact of lights, but we do know that they are likely a real negative for many of our night flying insects. Um, you know, most people go out during the day, so they see if they're seeing insects at all, they see them in the day. They're not seeing the incredible diversity of moths and beetles and other insects, fireflies that are negatively affected by too many lights. So turning off lights is important. The last one is also uh, introduction of other uh, insects. You know, we're moving animals around and sometimes we do that on purpose. Um, Releasing lady beetles in your garden is likely not a benefit to anything. It's it's fun. uh, but it's it's likely a net negative, the same with things like lace wings. Building up populations of natural enemies in your garden is is really the way to go. So I think we've got the big four, uh, uh, which is habitat loss, pesticide use, diseases, climate change. But then we have some other issues like lights, uh, like invasive species um, uh, that uh, also are are at play here. Yeah. Okay. So I think we're now fully at the bottom. And, you know, I think one of the things for for me as a home gardener and speaking to my community of home gardeners, this idea that you referenced a little earlier, Scott, of um, kind of bad news fatigue and turning off the radio because it just feels like, what can I do? This is so overwhelming. And it is overwhelming. And we should be very, very close to overwhelm, but just close enough to be to be lit up by how much we can do. And I am thinking here now of the magic of you as a child in this one lot that wasn't developed and how full of life it was. It had mosquitoes and worms and beetles and snakes and and gophers and lizards and, you know, fireflies. And it was a, a little oasis. And that is what every home garden can and should be. And I know Xerxes and uh, B City and B Campus, this is what you're trying to help us do. So I want to get to this. I want to get to the solutions and the actions. Today we're in our first episode in a series of five, exploring our gardens as critically important habitat in this world for bees, birds, and all manner of life. Scott Black and Phyllis Stiles of the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation are speaking with us about the scale of the problem as we currently understand it and the often simple solutions every one of us can take to help make a difference. We'll be back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud here. You may have heard this story before, but I want to remind you and me. The Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation is an international nonprofit organization that protects the natural world through the conservation of invertebrates and their habitats. They take their name from a sad story, the name of the extinct Xerces blue butterfly. 
the first butterfly known to go extinct in North America as a result of human activities. At one point in our conversation today, Scott and I get to the point of talking about all that we as humans can do to help turn this trend of destruction around. And Scott says, we can all make a difference with our actions, including the home gardener. And you know me. I wanted to jump right in there and I wanted to say with great emphasis, especially we home gardeners can make a difference. We are better suited to this work of love and life than anyone. I'm not judging you or yelling at you or rapping your knuckles. I am reminding me and you along with me about changes we can make easy ones. If 38% of all households report engaging in gardening and the average household uses 3.5 pounds of pesticides each year, we're among that and we can eliminate a great deal of this going into our soils, our waters, our air, and our kids. If there are 40 million acres of chemically dependent lawn that could be flowering, lively, lovely plantings. We are among the households that could commit to reducing whatever lawn we do have. If some enormous percentage of our public and private landscape plant choices is non-native and non-ecologically functional, even small additions of more natives to each of our gardens will make a difference. We can do this. We can change our own ways and make an impact. We, the home gardeners listening right now, you, me, we are built to do this. I was raised using miracle Grow and Osmocote and Rose Care systemic food, which only later I came to understand was actually an insecticide and fungicide. Once I made the connection, it was a no-brainer. Amanda Thompson of Kiss My Aster shared this sentiment last week. At what point does our own well-being, and, I will add, the well-being of our planet, supersede what our neighbors think, supersede our own expediency, or supersede some empty value of outdated aesthetics? I will continue to interrogate myself and my garden. She, my garden, generally tells me the hard truths with love. Now, back to Scott Black and Phyllis Stiles of the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation and Bee City USA. Make sure to check out all that you can learn and get involved in at xerceessociety.org. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're back after a break to continue our conversation with Scott Black, Executive Director of the Xerces Society, and Phyllis Stiles, founder of Bee City and Bee Campus USA, now an initiative of the Xerces Society, advocating for healthy life and habitats across the country, and indeed, the globe. Welcome back. I want to really get beyond, you know, just the charismatic species because I love the monarch butterfly and we're going to have a whole episode on the monarch. Um, But 
that and the honeybee and even the rusty patch, they're kind of they're kind of poster children for what is this whole symphony of of life that we want to encourage and support. And that includes horrible things that we as gardeners have been trained to not love, like the aphid. I think we need to build a little aphid love. So I'm going to turn this over to you and have you talk uh, one one at a time. Maybe let's start again with you, Scott, and then move to you, Phyllis. Um, talk to the home gardeners here and me. What what do you want to see us doing? What are you doing to help us? And what do you want to see us specifically doing? Well, the neat thing about the conservation of insects, and one of the reasons why um, I love my job is because anybody can take action. You know, as I said, I started out with loving the small insects, but when you get into the conservation field, I actually never thought I would work on insects actually for their conservation. You know, I worked on salmon and wolves and old growth forests and wild rivers and wilderness uh, mm-hmm. in my early career. And they're all very important, very, very important. But the neat thing about insect co- conservation is that anybody can do it, including the backyard gardener. And it's really pretty straightforward and easy. You know, think about a buffet of plants. Um, This is what gardeners do. Um, But think about it in terms of not just yourself. You can have uh, beauty here with this, but what the animals need, which is a buffet of flowers, you know, a lot of natives uh, from as early in the spring as possible to as late in the fall as possible. You're going to help a whole myriad of insects Uh, bees, the whole uh, plethora of native bees out there, some of them coming out in the spring, some of them coming out later. They come out in successions over the whole season. You're going to help all the butterflies. You're going to also, though, help all the moths, the beetles, and the other animals. Um, So that that diversity begets diversity, uh, a diversity Mm -hmm. of plants out there. And they don't all have to be native. You know, uh, natives are best for our native animals, but we live in human constructed societies and having some of your favorite plants uh, is, is, I think, important for us. Um, I, of course, grow lots of vegetables. Most of those are not native to North America, but I'm going to grow them because they're healthy. I can feed my kids with them. The second one, which is equally important and sometimes harder to get people to take action on are the pesticides. You know, insecticides kill insects. And oh, gardeners and others in urban spaces and suburban spaces in our towns and cities use a lot of insecticides and herbicides. Studies by USGS show that in many cases, more pesticides are used in urban acre in urban areas on an acre basis than in ag areas. You know, sometimes we point the finger at those farmers for using too many pesticides, but we're using them in the quest for the perfect rose or the the weed-free lawn um, or the absolutely no aphids. So uh, dialing back and eliminating pesticide use is vital if we're going to um, uh, win this battle. And the neat thing about that is in gardens, 
if you have a good diversity of plants, uh, you can often dial back the pesticides. There are cultural controls. You're going to start getting natural enemies uh, in there. Also, think about where animals live when they're not feeding, um, uh, because you know we need we need food and we need uh, refuge from pesticides, but we also need a place for them to live. Many of our native bees nest in the ground. Um, most of our native bees are actually single individuals provisioning their young. They're not, they don't live in hives. Um, they might live in the ground. They might live in old beetle burrows. Um, messiness is good. Um, you can contain that messiness to parts of your garden. Your whole garden doesn't need to be messy, but having, uh, branches, uh, stacked up over several years, uh, raking leaves in the corners is, is all really good. And then I'd say last, is tell your neighbor because we can do all this stuff in our own lives. But uh, the fun part of this has been talking to all my neighbors who look at us quizzically because we live in a kind of suburban area and the changes we're making to our, our landscape. And it's beautiful. And people go, oh, I get it. You can have a beautiful landscape that is really beneficial for humans, for my kids and for all the other animals. So that's the neat thing is, is it's, it's, it's really pretty easy. We just all have to start taking action. Yeah. And I think that community outreach that you mentioned there at the end really pulls us naturally into all that Phyllis has been doing with Bee City and Bee Campus. So Phyllis, I'm going to ask you that same question. What, what would you say to people about what you want to see them doing and how they can be the biggest help possible in repairing this fabric. Scott did a beautiful job of, of summing up what you can do in your own backyard. What we're doing at B-City USA and B-Campus USA, uh, right now we're up to 146 affiliates total, and each of those affiliates went through a certification process that required them to commit to having a, a recommended native plant species list having a pollinator-friendly integrated pest management plan for their city or their campus, holding uh, awareness events throughout the year, and then annually reporting on what they accomplished the previous year in pollinator conservation awareness and habitat. And so um, these uh, 67 campuses across the country and 79 cities across the country have made this commitment to spread pollinator love um, throughout their communities and their campuses. And that by doing that, they become living models of what it means to be pollinator friendly. And so, you know, there's one estimate that uh, every American uses an average of three and a half pounds of pesticide a year. So we've got a lot of room for reducing pesticide use. Mm -hmm. And so if a college campus, for example, models uh, maintaining a beautiful campus without using so many pesticides, if any, then they show others that it can be done and they, they start spreading the word of how it can be done. Yeah. And so that's what's happening all across the country. We're teaching one another how to do things in a different way. We're trying to change the American paradigm for ornamental landscaping, which right now um, looks like that about 75% at least, at least, of 
American landscapes are dominated by non-native plants that are from some other continent. So um, we have um, a lot of room for improvement. And so just making small changes in the right direction really impact the pollinators. And so one example of that is we put up a bee box for mason bees in uh, my backyard. My husband dug the hole and mounted the bee box on a stake. And um, as he was digging the hole, he said, look, this is clay. And he said, you know what, I'm going to put this clay on top of the, the box. Maybe the mason bees can use it. I am not kidding you. Within an hour, we had mason bees collecting that clay and building their nest in the bee box that we had just mounted. And so not only if you plant it, they will come. If you uh, create more habitat, like Scott described, by leaving those uh, tree branches and leaving those pithy stems at the end of the fall and, and leaving the leaves in your yard in nice, neat places, 94% of moths pupate under leaf litter or under the ground under leaf litter. Um, you know, so you start to see how those little changes in the way that you landscape can have huge impacts. And we know that even in New York City, which is about as urban as you can get, <laughs> when they, uh, they monitored to see how many different species of bees they could find, they found 200 species of bees in New York City. So urban areas matter in our landscape where only 5% of the American landscape can be considered natural anymore. So um, that's what we do in B cities and B campuses. We start doing landscaping a different way that's still beautiful, but it's also inviting pollinators and other wildlife to coexist with us as our neighbors. Yeah. And I think that retraining of of the home gardener, for, for me, there is a distinct difference between a, a yard and a landscape and a garden. And, and that difference has to do with the intention and the life that you're trying to bring to the space. And I really feel as though one of the great rules of engagement for, for true gardeners has to be do no harm. And that includes weaning yourself of things like Roundup and systemic uh, controls on your ornamental roses. And it, be, it has become in the last 70 years sort of standard of care, but it wasn't always. And we can do without it because it means us helping to repair and support and acknowledge the importance of this fabric that we're part of. Um, I just so appreciate you both being here, so appreciate knowing that you are out in the world doing this work with such vigor and such passion. Is there anything else either one of you would like to add? Well, I would just like to add that anybody can take a step. You know, as I mentioned, I now live in kind of a suburban area. It's a beautiful area. I've got seven acres of park and, and uh, a little natural area behind me, but it's, but it's a suburban area. And um, I'm seeing some neighbors, because uh, of us, take little steps adding a few native plants. One of the neighbors isn't really using pesticides anymore. Um, uh, other neighbors are looking at what they can do to add more plant diversity into the landscape. 
So take a step. If you're a traditional gardener, start adding um, uh, some native plants in that might be good for uh, pollinators or other insects. Yeah. Really think about your pesticide use and whether you need it. And I do want to add, we have a lot of resources at yeah. the Xerces Society uh, at xerces.org um, for gardeners, for land managers, for farmers, for everybody. Go there. You can find plant lists. You can find information on different pesticides. You can find alternatives to how to manage uh, different landscapes. Um, but just take that little step. And then last, look at what you have. I like to say, grab a chair, grab your favorite drink. doesn't have to be alcoholic. Um, lemonade and sit in your garden and start to look at all of the little animals that are visiting all of the plants. Mm. And all of a sudden you will realize that you are tending a uh, more than just your flowers. You're tending to this myriad animals that are coming in and you're making the world a better place. Yeah, thanks uh, for asking that question. We would love it if folks would visit bcdusa.org and look at the resources we offer there. And we also have a page for B-City USA and, uh, well, a section for B-City USA and a section for B-Campus USA. It gives instructions on how to get more information about joining us in our network. And, um, and we're always here and available to answer questions. I have the most wonderful conversations with people literally around the world every day uh, about how they can get their community on board with pollinator conservation. So we welcome those conversations. Thank you both so much for being here. I have been honored to speak with you both. Thank you. This has been wonderful. Thanks. We appreciate your interest in creating more habitat. Scott Black is executive director of the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation, and Phyllis Stiles is the founder and director of Bee City and Bee Campus USA, now an initiative of the Xerces Society. Together, these people and their work connect us as gardener conservationists from coast to coast, helping us to make a difference and bridge gaps in healthy habitat for flora, for fauna, and for us. If you want more Cultivating Place in your life, you can subscribe to our newsletter. A view from here is the email update I send out towards the end of each month, which includes botanical thoughts, information on upcoming events, book or garden reviews, and more. This includes things I've been loving but haven't been able to feature on the show. If you love the program, I think you'll really love the newsletter. Head to cultivatingplace.com newsletter to sign up. Join us again next week as the conversations continue in this five-part series on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. When we're joined by Dr. Anurag Agrawal, research scientist and professor at Cornell University, his book, Monarchs and Milkweed, A Migrating Butterfly, A Poisonous Plant, and Their Remarkable Story of Coevolution is an Education in Itself. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. For more information and many photos from this week's episode, see the show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. 
Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our engineer is Sky Schofield. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Thank you.